Good morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to look at the first 12 verses here this morning. So Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. And once you're there, then I'll ask if you please stand out of reverence for God's holy word. And these are the perfect words of our holy God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is what these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went away and told Jesus. And may God bless the reading of his word. Who thought the Bible was rated G? <laughs> if this was a movie, it would not be G. We're going to look at a couple themes. So we've just finished Jesus' uh, preaching parables about the kingdom, and now we're moving kind of back into a narrative stretch, kind of a historical uh, recounting. And we keep seeing themes that keep coming up in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the most important ones is the unity uh, between the Old and the New Testament eras. And remember, this Gospel is written for a Jewish audience, and so Matthew is sure to show how Christ is the true Israel. He has retraced Israel's steps through his temptation, through the time of 40 in the desert, and so forth. He is retracing Israel's steps obediently. There is one unfolding plan of redemption from Genesis through to the end of Revelation for the covenant people of God. And in this, Matthew frequently invokes typology, sometimes right on the nose and sometimes in a more subtle manner. But what seems subtle to us would have seemed much more obvious sometimes to the first century audience who was well steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and in the history of the day, which we sometimes need to take a little bit of extra effort to understand uh, the circumstances, and we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. These people lived in that world, and they were alive for this transition from the Old Covenant types and shadows and promises to the New Covenant fulfillment and the termination of all those types and shadows in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in today's narrative, we're going to see two major themes. One is a war between kingdoms. And if we go back and you remember, John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of God. He was kind of a herald or a forerunner of Jesus. And the vast majority of Christ's recent teaching has been spent on describing the kingdom, the kingdom that he is building, and how it's progressively dismantling and displacing the Antichrist kingdoms of this world. And this war between kingdoms is depicted in various ways in the stories of the Old Testament. Uh, but one of these common, you know, two, two rival uh, factions stories happens in the womb of Rebecca and her two twins. Inside of Rebecca, two nations are striving against each other. 
and through a fascinating story of God's promises of deceit and counter-deceit and broken promises and God's promises which cannot be broken no matter how many layers of deceit we bake into it, a desperate negotiation, trickery, dishonesty, Jacob emerges as the head of a great and godly nation and Esau becomes the head of an unruly nation. Jacob is later renamed Israel. Jacob is the first Israel, and we know that Christ is the true and final Israel. And the descendants of Esau, his brother, become known as the Edomites or the Idumeans. And so when we get up to this time in history where Jesus is ministering, when the Romans have taken control of Jerusalem, they're smart enough to set up local rulers that the locals will more or less be familiar with and respect just to keep the peace. And so the people set up in this area of the Roman Empire are the Idumeans, the Herods, or the descendants of Esau. And of course, we know John the Baptist and his cousin Jesus are Israelites, or sons of Jacob. So when John the Baptist, an Israelite, goes to preach to Herod, an Idumean, this is just another installment of the war between Jacob and Esau that started in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. Another theme that emerges is the relationship between God's prophets and the kings of the day. And so we know all through the stories of the Old Testament, there's these interactions between the kings who rule the nations and the prophets who act as the conscience of those nations that come to talk to them positively or negatively. Prophets are often rightly seen as a kind of uh, lawyers on behalf of God. They're enforcing the terms of the the covenant that God has given uh, to these people. And John the Baptist is the last one in this line of old covenant prophets. uh, And his fate that we read about this morning is entirely in keeping with the fate of many of the Old Testament prophets uh, as well. But we see something back in Matthew 11... We see that Jesus called his cousin John the Baptist. He said he is, uh, which Old Testament prophet is John? Does he remember? Elijah. John is compared uh, in Matthew 11 verse 14. uh, By Jesus, he is called the Elijah who is to come. Okay, and so then we must ask, if John is Elijah, who is the successor that comes uh, and receives a double portion of that spirit after him? Must be Christ. Elisha, okay? And we're going to see next week in the story of the feeding of 5,000, this isn't just a party trick. Next week we will see in this miracle, this is very clearly Elisha, okay? He's doing Elisha stuff in that miracle. So we see this typological Elijah and Elisha pointing to the greater fulfillment of Christ, or John the Baptist, and his greater successor, uh, Christ. In 2 Kings 2, it says that Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit, just like Christ receives a greater spirit uh, than John did. And if you go back and you count it up, there's uh, 14 miracles of Elijah recounted in the Old Testament and 28 of Elisha. So this doubling up is very literal, at least in terms of the number of miracles that are uh, recounted. So here we have the greater Elijah, Elisha, the greater John the Baptist, Jesus Christ on his way. In chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, we're going to read that Jesus explains to his apostles again, just so they're sure not to miss it, that John the Baptist was Elijah. 
I, I need you guys to get this. That was Elijah. And of course, this is meant in a typological sense. This isn't reincarnation. This isn't uh, Elijah resurrected, but this is the typological fulfillment of Elijah. They're in the same spirit. And of course, we see many other uh, parallels between the ministry of Elijah and John the Baptist. Elijah was a minister in the dark days with a very wicked king by the name of King Ahab and his even more evil wife, Jezebel. John the Baptist is ministering to a wicked man named Herod and his even more evil wife, Herodias. Okay? Both men are made even more wicked because of the women in their lives. And this is all background information that helps us to see the unity of the story uh, that is being told and that's playing out to this first century audience. Verse 1 says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And you may read the name Herod in the Bible and think this is all one guy, but there's actually many, many, many Herods. It's so many, it's actually hard to track them a little bit sometimes. Uh, but the Herods, this is just a family name that started to be used as a royal title, kind of like Caesar was a guy and then it was a title, right? And, and even in modern times, in these Germanic empires, it was the Kaiser, Right? And in Russia, it's the czar. This is all rooted in the word Caesar after a man. Herod works the same way. It was a family name that became a title because this title just kind of followed this family around. But there are many Herods in the Bible. And this is Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, well, what does that mean? Well, when Herod the Great, the first Herod died, he divided his kingdom into fourths, into quarters. And a Tetrarch is a ruler of one quarter, and he divided this, uh, his kingdom, between his sons, Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas, who seems to have received a double portion. Herod Antipas ruled the region of Perea and Galilee where Jesus ministered. And there was tensions that are starting to build in this region. We've been seeing it as we've walked through this gospel. There's this tension building between the Pharisees and between Christ, and this is starting to become a political problem. Right? If there's unrest, a, a ruler wants everything to stay stable. He wants the Roman emperor to be happy with him. He wants to keep his job. I've got to keep this under wraps. Uh, and so he's starting to notice that there's unrest among the people because of John and because of Jesus. So these internal squabbles among the Jews are becoming a political problem for the Roman rulers. And then verse 2, it says, And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay, so fear is clearly starting to strike at the heart of Herod when he hears Jesus. And then he remembers how he treated John the Baptist. Clearly, there's a torment in this man's conscience that he's having this flashback to what he just did. And what the narrative does, it recounts that flashback to help us understand that the instability that Christ was creating wasn't just in the world of religion, but this was becoming a political problem in the real world. And as Christians, it is our task to see that all truth meets at the top. All truth is God's truth. So we simply do not have permission to separate the world into disciplines which have to do with God, like theology and church stuff, and then other disciplines which have nothing to do with God, like the real world, right? The real world has nothing to do with God. History has nothing to do with God. Chemistry and biology, that's got nothing to do with God. God's just concerned about the spiritual stuff, like church. We don't have permission to do that. That's not how this works. All truth is God's truth. All creation is God's creation. And all things exist in reference to God, and the story of John's beheading very clearly illustrates this truth. Herod is scared because he has a guilty conscience, and we would say rightly so. Herod needs to have a guilty conscience. He ought to have a guilty conscience. And one of the curses of sin for him and for us 
is that sin confuses us and it turns us into cowards. Sinners who refuse to be forgiven unravel into fear, paranoia, panic, and delusion. And this happens both at a personal level and it can and does happen at a corporate level as well, at a societal level. And we see that in our society all around us today. This is what happens when a people lose their mind. Well, why do people lose their minds? Because they're guilty and they're not forgiven. Okay? They turn in on themselves and the paranoia and the anxiety actually make sense. It's actually an appropriate response to knowing that God is angry with you and you refuse to make peace with him. And the Bible explains this always in terms of sin. So I would encourage all of us to just set aside our modern psychology textbooks for a minute. Don't listen to Freud. Don't listen to Jung. For sure, don't listen to Skinner and don't listen to anything Kinsey has to say. Set it all aside and see what God says about the psychology of man. In Leviticus 26, when God is threatening curses on his people for disobedience, listen to how the psychology works here. Leviticus 26. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. And they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as if to escape a sword, though nobody pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of the iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. Sin makes men cowards. It makes you pray to the nations around you. You, You're scared of everything, and you start stumbling over your own swords. You start attacking yourselves. It turns into a civil war when people are guilty and will not turn to God. And so to make application in our own time, assuming this is true, what God says about his creation, about the mind of uh, the image bearers that he's made, should we really be all that surprised that we live in an age of an epidemic of anxiety and depression in our society? It makes total sense. We ought to be anxious. We ought to be depressed. It makes sense because as a, as a whole, as a corporate people, we are absolutely at war with God. And deep down, we know it. We cannot have peace on the whole. How many times do you have to be told that you are enough? You can define who you are. You are free from any moral obligation that you didn't choose for yourself. Oh, well, you didn't choose to be a boy? Well, then you must be free from the oppression of being born a boy. You can be whatever you want, right? And of course, the godly answer is no. God puts many moral obligations on us that we did not choose. Your gender, who your parents are, where you're born, when you're born. Uh, There's lots of things that just are imposed on us that we are morally responsible for. But in an age that has turned in on itself and that wants to define everything in terms of ourselves... We can only suppress the truth of that for so long before it turns into a complete mental breakdown and spasms as we are indeed seeing in our time. All these lies come straight from the pit of hell. And men and women who believe them won't see any kind of obligations that they have to the past or to the future. Men need to see, as part of honoring where we are in history and honoring our fathers and mothers, we need to see that we have moral obligations and duties both to our grandfathers and to our grandchildren. This is how it works. The people in Leviticus 26 were cursed because of the mistakes that their grandparents made. And so it's on all of us to think both in terms of uh, a debt that we owe to our grandfathers 
and the debt that we owe to our grandsons who are yet to be born. There's long-term consequences of these things. And so going back, Herod represents the Antichrist kingdom of Esau, and because he has not been forgiven by God for what he has done, he has not repented, he is remaining at war with God. And that war has him scared enough that his sin against John the Baptist is coming back here to haunt him. He fears Jesus, not because of Jesus. He fears Jesus because he fears that this is John the Baptist coming back to haunt him. And the story moves to a flashback that helps us understand what's happening in Harold's conscience. And this too, in itself, could be a movie. Because the story that just seems straightforward and we're maybe familiar with is actually filled with seduction, adultery, murder, lies, false honor, the breaking of political violence, the breaking of political alliances that descends into violence, feuding in a royal family, many, many, many layers of incest, and a prophet who claims to have moral authority over a king. This is also not a G-rated movie, okay? It says in verse 3 and 4, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Sometimes we hear about the separation of church and state, and this is one of those concepts that in its original form has some truth to it, but has become so uh, misunderstood in our time that it almost makes no sense at all. Properly understood, church and state are both God's ideas, and he has established both to be his ministers in creation. The church administers God's grace through the sacraments and through the preaching of the gospel, and the state administers God's justice through the sword, as Romans 13 says. And Romans 13 even calls the state God's deacon, his diaconos. He's a minister of God. He's got a job on behalf of God in the creation. So church and state are set up as distinct bodies. Neither one should eat the other up. These are like two brothers, you know, one brother's in charge of the cropping and the other brother's in charge of the cows. That's how this is meant to work, mutually supportive of each other, not one swallowing up the other. And our radical concept today uh, means that many people think that the state is just allowed to operate independently of God. People in government can do whatever they want free from any kind of moral restraint. They're free to set up their own rules and their own job description. But this has never been the case and is not the case and can never be the case because God frequently sends his messengers to remind the king, the political rulers, that he too must give an account to God. Herod must answer God for the way he is. Herod is not free to just be his own man. Okay? And so for some of us who have grown up with a very kind of radical two kingdoms theology that teaches you know, complete uninvolvement in the affairs of this world, The story of John the Baptist poses a significant problem because John doesn't take a, well, let's just withdraw from government approach. He goes right in, says, Herod, you are not allowed to do this, and I am speaking on behalf of God. Just because you're a political ruler doesn't mean you're immune from God. You may not have your brother's wife, okay? We cannot say that John was sinning by injecting himself in secular matters when he should have just been teaching his, you know, are are we going to say that this was wrong and and he should have just been working on spiritual things? Well, just pray for Herod, just pray for him, Don't, don't talk to him. Well, why does it have to be one or the other? John's showing us that you cannot separate these things, okay? And how many Christians could you hear today kind of, you know, if this was happening in our time, how many can just picture somebody shushing John the Baptist for having a poor testimony? John's got such a poor testimony, right? You know, after all, the world is watching John, and you're getting involved in secular matters. 
You know, more people would become Christians if you didn't take such an aggressive approach, John. Right? You, you need to dial it back, John. Instead of confronting Herod, maybe you should just bake him a plate of cookies and go to his house. And, and, and you should be doing this. Right? And of course, if you really push that, you could say maybe Jesus could have spared his own life had he been a little more Christ-like. Right? A little more winsome. Jesus could have spared his own life. But that's not the way these men operate. They just go right in and they say it. Both Jesus and John know better than this. They know that kings and rulers and nations exist by God and for God, and so they must be reminded of God's expectations. And that's part of the prophet's job. That's part of the church's job, is to be the conscience of a people. The state, the Roman Empire, is a thing, and Romans 11.36 teaches that all things exist from God, through God, and to God. Therefore, Herod has an obligation to glorify God in the way he is living his life and the way he is ruling his people. And the objection sometimes comes that it's, you know, we all, that's, he's an unbeliever. We can only expect things of, of believers, and so, you know, we can't say anything to unbelievers. But that's also just simply not true. Herod's an Idumean. He's not an Israelite. But John has this moral compulsion to go talk to him about the way he's living. And according to Scripture, this is good and right and normal. Nobody, even political rulers, have an excuse which gives them permission to act autonomously from God. Repentance is not merely an offer, but it's a solemn command that God commands. What does it say in Acts 17? He commands all people everywhere to repent. People, the gospel is not just an invitation, it's a command. You must repent. You must repent or Jesus Christ will break your knees into powder at the judgment. You must repent. Herod, you must repent of your sin. So we cannot shrink away from the public square any more than John did or any more than Jesus did. This all happened out in the open in the public square. God is clearly concerned about the state of affairs in his creation. We have to press the crown rights of Jesus everywhere. We cannot say that Jesus doesn't have crown rights in certain elements. He has crown rights everywhere. His creation, his rules, everywhere. Right? Because after all, when the Gospel of Matthew closes and Jesus sends the church out with the Great Commission, he says all authority in heaven and in the 17th dimension that never makes contact with the real world has been given to me. Right? Is that what he says? Is that what he says? No? What does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's the kind of stuff that gets prophets beheaded. Okay? Nobody minds if you say, well, Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven. That's not a threat to anyone. When you say Jesus Christ has all authority on earth and you must obey him right now, that's what gets you thrown in prison. Okay? That's what gets you beheaded. That's what gets you canceled or whatever the case may be. Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and on earth and John is acting accordingly. So our approach to the Christian life must be capable of thinking through a consistent theology of the world outside of our hearts. We must take the authority of Christ seriously. Okay? We must be moving in the same direction as John the Baptist. But what was the issue over which John and Herod were at odds? Verse 4 says that it was because John had told Herod that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. And true enough, as a standalone comment, you are not allowed to commit adultery with your sister-in-law. Okay? Pretty straightforward. But this is not garden variety adultery. This is much, much worse. We know, that's not in the text, but we know from the Jewish historians at the time that Herodias, this wife, this woman, was the daughter of Aristobulus IV, who is the brother 
to both Philip and to Antipas. Okay, so if you're following me, this woman is his niece. Okay, so this niece married her uncle, and then she left that uncle to have an affair with this uncle. Okay, this isn't just garden variety uh, adultery. This is incestuous as well. He is sleeping with his niece. This niece has gone from one uncle to the other uncle. Uh, it's much more uh, scandalous than we might think at first reading. So she leaves her uncle Philip and moves on to Uncle Herod Antipas. And so that does mean that the woman that Herod was sleeping with was not only his sister-in-law, but also his niece. And further, in order for him to take her, it meant sending away his real wife, Phasaelus, who was the daughter of a neighboring king. And that marriage resulted in peace between the Nibetians and uh, the, the Romans. And so now that's broken. So now there's political consequences. There's war happening because of a divorce. Uh, and this guy's sleeping with his niece. So now everything's starting to get pretty tumultuous. The political temperature is getting very, very high here. There's political consequences for all of this. So John is injecting himself not just in a moral situation, but in a political situation. And time will not permit... I, I would love to go through the story of Herod Antipas's complete mental breakdown, but he gets absolutely bizarre and out of control uh, to the point where actually the emperor relieves some of his duties and says, okay, you're going to go live in Gaul and you're going to die there and you are never, ever coming back here again. That's present-day France. Imagine doing something so bad you have to live in France. But <laughs> it must have been pretty bad. Uh, and you can read up on the story. Herod Antipas's breakdown is just one of the phenomenal blowouts in history. This man is a textbook case. Verse 5 says, And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so here you see this unstable mind at work. John's preaching was a constant reminder of Herod's rebellion and hatred against God. And people who remain in their sin always have options at their disposal. The best option is to repent of your sin, be cleansed, as Don read this morning, and enjoy peace with God. Okay? doesn't matter. God forgives incestuous uncles. Okay? God forgives uh, unstable rulers. God forgives all of these people. So that's the that's the option you always take, is repent of your sin and enjoy peace with God. But for those who don't do that, there's other options left at their disposal. One, they may fill their time with meaningless nonsense, which usually involves surrounding yourself with other people just as miserable as yourself, so you can all lie to each other about how awesome you all are. Okay? And then you can complain about those self-richest hypocrites, those church people like John the Baptist. You can really complain about them. And in modern times, again, to make modern application, this is the psychology behind why the pride movement is so aggressive. It has to be. It has to be loud enough to push out everyone's conscience. Okay? Because even 30 seconds of silence reminds me I'm at war with God. It, by nature, it has to be flamboyant. It has to be loud. It has to be militant because everyone involved is trying to numb their conscience. Okay? This is behind, you know, hashtag self-care. This is behind the, uh, the guys who all agree to neglect their family duties together and they're all going to do you know, beer and poker and whatever else uh, while they're neglecting their wives and their children. Okay? This is behind the feminists who once lied to us and said that they wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. They've moved very fastly to just shout your abortion. Be proud of the most despicable thing you could do. You just murdered your baby in what should be the safest place. Shout it. Okay? That's the psychology behind this. It gets so audacious that you have to be militant because what you're doing is trying to numb your conscience. But not everybody does that. 
For those who don't want to get right with God, for those who don't want to just crowd it out with noise and build a little miserable empire around themselves, there is another option, which is censorship. Just make preaching illegal. And this is the option that Herod himself took. Today, of course, this takes shape in the form of anti-hate laws, right? C4, C11, we've had a, a number of them recently. And these are especially effective if you bury these laws in language that sound all very loving and very tolerant and very neutral and there's going to be love and harmony. But you can't get away from the fact that somebody is always imposing their morality on somebody else. You just cannot get away from this. This is one of those inescapable concepts. It's a which morality will be imposed, not whether morality will be imposed. Herod did not like John imposing God's morality on him, so Herod with a sword, imposes his morality on John the Baptist. But you see how this works? Somebody is always imposing their morality on somebody else. You cannot escape this. Okay? And somebody ends up with the sword, and somebody is going to use it to impose their morality. So all societies necessarily have a mandatory moral code which expresses itself in the forms of laws and customs. And these can be antichrist laws, or they will be laws that honor the living God. And we're Christians, so we want to be like John and not like Herod. We want to be on the side of God's perfect and righteous law, not on the side of man's arbitrary and confused law. And so Herod's moral dilemma means that he wants to kill John. And like all heavy-handed tyrants, deep down he fears his people, which is why he must keep moving to more and more heavy-handed approaches, measures. So people with a clear conscience, like John, who is forgiven for whatever sin he did, he's right with God, he has the courage knowing that he is right with God. He fears nothing. He can just walk into this situation pretty nonchalantly. He fears nothing. And today, people with a clear conscience have enough confidence, or at least they ought to, that we don't need to resort to unnecessary violence. John is working with persuasion. John is working with words. Herod doesn't have the moral confidence to do that, so he resorts very quickly to the sword. People with a guilty conscience use force because they lack courage, and so force becomes all they have. And this is why you cannot use logic with an angry campus mob and why you can't explain the importance of history to a revolutionary group of people. All of them lack the moral integrity to think straight. They can't. I just saw a video of a street preacher somewhere in, I think, Philadelphia. It doesn't matter. And he was just calm and pretty peaceful and just sharing the gospel in a street corner. And this, you know, pink-haired woman comes up to him. And she's just screaming in his face. And he's trying to explain the gospel. And she just shrieks. Her morals mean that's intellectually all she is capable of. It's a moral problem, which results in an intellectual problem. Okay? People without moral courage can't even think straight. And you see that in the breakdown of what's happening in this narrative. Okay? Nothing has changed. People who are at war with God soon lose their ability to think. It cannot be otherwise. Okay? If you have divorced yourself from the great mind, your mind just goes into arbitrariness. So Herod is scared of the people and what they think. So we get a glimpse into the, the struggle inside this man. And all of this is in keeping with the wisdom of Proverbs 28 verse 1, which says that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge. Sin makes men cowards. This is what Chesterton meant when he said, if men will not be ruled by the Ten Commandments, they will soon find themselves ruled by the Ten Thousand Commandments. Okay? If people refuse to be godly, you're just going to have law upon law upon law upon law upon law to the point where there's a library in Canada filled with laws that we can't even remember. Okay? 
because we are an ungodly people. Sin makes men cowards, and righteousness makes men courageous. Verses 6 goes on. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Okay, so if you thought that the sexual depravity in the story was already audacious, it's about to get a whole lot worse. Okay, so now Herod and his no-good buddies are having this big birthday blowout party, and the daughter of Herodias comes to dance for the boys. And Herod likes it so much that he, gives, he promises to give her whatever she wants. Okay? And if you're a man in this room, you know what the thing is that will make you lose all sense of proportion, all sense of propriety, all sense of judgment, that you're going to make a stupid promise that you know is going to be a bad idea. Okay? We all know the psychology of this. There's stories in the Bible of what kind of a thing, what kind of a trade-off men are looking for when they do this. We know this from King Abimelech. We know this from Samson. We know this from King David. We know this from Absalom. We know this from Solomon. Men know what this dance was about. You understand why you would say, I'll give you anything in exchange for this dance. So we can imagine what kind of a dance this is to please Herod this much. But now keep in mind who this girl is. Okay? Her name is Salome. We know that from the Jewish historian Josephus. So she is the granddaughter of Herod's brother Aristobulus. She is the daughter of Herod's own brother Philip. And she is the daughter of Herod's new wife Herodias, who also happens to be his niece. So if you're following me, that means that this girl who did this dance for Herod is his great-niece, his niece, and his stepdaughter doing a sexual dance for her uncle. And Josephus says she was 13 years old when this happened. Okay? This story just got a whole lot worse. Okay? What kind of stuff is happening in this royal family? My goodness. This guy is a true stretcher case. Okay, and so just like Jezebel prompted Ahab into deeper and deeper evil, so Salome and her mother Herodias prompt Herod into deeper and deeper evil. And so there's no doubt that the very existence of John the Baptist made them feel shame. And again, rightly so. In today's language, they may have said that John the Baptist was maybe his patriarchal. For sure he was toxic. I don't doubt he made them feel very unsafe. Okay. But if he's in prison, he can't really say much. Why is he a threat? This guy's in prison. He can't talk to anybody. Okay, but the fact that he's alive is an indictment on their conscience. We all know how this works. Right? You're the one Christian in your family and you just sit there and say absolutely nothing and people are angry at you for being self-righteous. Why? Because the fact that you are taking breath is an indictment to their conscience. Okay? Guilty people feel guilty and that makes sense. Anxiety makes sense sense for unbelievers. We struggle with it too sometimes. I sure have. But it's a great opportunity to start looking at the heart issues that feed that kind of thing. So it's one thing for men to be given to sexual depravity and violence. And these things are just as sinful for men as they are for women. And yet there is something more audacious when women are given up to this kind of thing. And in Romans 1, this descent into depravity, once the women lose the moral restraint, it's, it's over. Okay? Women tend to be more conservative than men, and when women give themselves up to this, it's over. 
And so we may ask, how could this ever happen? Incest with a teenage girl? This is just gross all the way around. It's gross. But what kind of people are we? Well, the kind of people that pay girls that age to butcher their babies. Okay? We're the kind of people that mutilate the genitalia of children so that they'll never enjoy the glory of parenthood to help them live out a lie. That's who we are. Okay? We're not better than this. We're not better than this. We are just as confused. We are just as depraved. And the guilty conscience that will not be reconciled to God will keep inventing kinds of evil to keep itself distracted and entertained. So Herod is not some helpless victim in here either. Despite the, the fact that Matthew describes the torment he's experiencing. He's made a rash promise. He's obviously terrified of John because we know from verse 1 that the reason he fears Jesus is because he thinks he's John. So his conscience is guilty. He's worried about this. Okay, so on one level, as he's making this decision, he's likely not even convinced that John can be killed. It might seem like John is some kind of a zombie that actually can't be put down. And if that's the way you're thinking, think of how scary this is. I can't even put my opponent to death. This is getting terrifying. Okay, this is like the stuff of night terrors. I can't get rid of this guy. And so he knows he's going to compound his trouble by killing an innocent man. And John's death will not ease his guilty conscience, but it will only make it worse. And so he has a twisted sense of honor, which makes him think because he promised this in front of his guests, he has to follow through with his rash vow. And so all of this palace intrigue and volatility is fueled by guilt, every last drop of it. And it stands in sharp contrast to the very closing verse of this section. Notice the peaceful and reverent and calm description in this last verse. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. It's a very matter-of-fact closing, isn't it? All this stuff is happening and these guys just kind of go about their business. While Herod's family is in disarray due to their unresolved guilt, here we have the photo negative of that. We have the reverent and sober and tender actions of godly people. These people seem unaffected by fear despite everything that's happened. These people are steadfast and honorable. The disciples come to bury John's body and then they go tell Christ about it. And burial of the dead is a consistent pattern all through Scripture. The way they handle this body is consistent with both the Old and New Testaments because as Christians we believe in resurrection. We don't believe a body is a throwaway thing. So burial of the dead is done as much for the living as it is for the deceased. God can and does resurrect bodies no matter what kind of shape they are in. He doesn't need the raw materials in a certain form for resurrection to happen. However, what burial communicates to us is the hope in the resurrection. We put those bodies in the ground like a seed, knowing that body and soul will once again be knit back together at the resurrection. And if you go to a graveyard, the headstones are facing east because one day the sun, S-O-N, will rise for the last time and those bodies are coming out and the remarriage of body and soul is going to happen. This is the right way for Christians to handle a body. Pagan societies burn bodies Pagan societies carry dead bodies up. I saw one thing in Nepal. This guy's his job was to do sky burials where he backpacks a dead body up the mountain, hacks it into pieces, and then the crows eat it. Needless to say, this guy was a very desperate drunk. Okay? We handle the body with care because we know God's not done with a dead body. And burial communicates that according to 1 Corinthians 15. So, in summary... What have we seen here? The contrast is clear. We see the power and the sobriety and the calmness and the honor that comes with a clear conscience. These people can confidently go about their business without fear. 
they can think, like John the Baptist. What's the worst you can do to me? Send me to my Savior early? That's not so bad. Courageous people, justified people can think that way. There's nothing to fear. What's the worst they can do? However, those who are not at peace with God do not enjoy this confidence. And their lives will be marked by more and more discomfort, more inconsistency, more unrest, more double-mindedness, more frustration, more bitterness, more complaining, and more wicked actions. John the Baptist had a clean conscience, which means he didn't fear Herod or his family. He knew that even the most powerful men on earth must submit to God, and that rulers of nations have an obligation to glorify God in their moral conduct and in the way they govern and the laws they create. So when we think of how we are to live in the guilt-soaked world in which we live, we need to think carefully about what guilt and moral deceit do to our human minds. Guilty people are easy to steer. And this is why tyrants love lots of laws on the books. They can get you for anything at any time. Tyrants love lots of laws, especially nonsense laws. Tyrants also hate Christianity. Have you ever noticed that Christian churches aren't really allowed to preach a potent gospel in communist countries? Okay? Because Jesus Christ and his claim to have all authority on earth means you're not allowed to do what you're doing. So the gospel must be censored. Atheism becomes the creed of socialist countries as it must. And these people know, maybe not thinking it through, maybe they just know this instinctively. I am a believer that people do many things which we don't think about which are nevertheless true. If they cut people off from the gospel of Jesus Christ, these people will remain in their guilt. And if they remain in their guilt, they're fearful. Fearful men follow orders no matter how ungodly they are. So it's just a simple fact of history that nations and empires are known for tyranny, slavery, idolatry, and arbitrary laws, and Christianity and Christianity alone, and especially in its Protestant and Reformed expression, has been capable of producing societies with just weights and measures, fair courts, limited government, freedom of speech, freedom of commerce, freedom to move, and lasting intergenerational prosperity for the general population. But this is all rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm kind of mostly thankful for all these red pill people that realize there's something really wrong with the way things have been going for the last 50 years. But unless they find Jesus Christ, their solution will have just as many problems as what we currently have. Okay? The way out is not to be red pilled. Okay? Yes, you can see the problem but you've got nothing to replace it with if you don't create a clean conscience in men and women. It must be a clean conscience in the Lord Jesus Christ or else you have nothing positive to build. People with a clear conscience can handle freedom. They can handle commerce. They can handle uh, freedom of speech. But it must be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, and this is simple to understand. If God is not above the government, then the government becomes God. And without God, the king becomes the law. With God, the law rules over the king. And if the king becomes the law, we are setting ourselves up for arbitrary and inconsistent rules. For instance, conversion therapy is allowed as long as you're telling a little girl, yes, you are a boy. Okay? If you're telling that little girl the truth and you're trying to convert her to reality, that's a hate crime. Okay? I always love hate crime as opposed to what? Love crimes? But whatever. You know, and we've seen arbitrary with petty things too. Who remembers those great sciency days when NHL coaches wore masks to show everyone how righteous they were and players are fighting for a puck, spitting and sweating on each other in the corner and then sharing a water bottle? Remember that? If that's not the height of arbitrariness, what is? That's just pure force. There's no moral integrity to that whatsoever. 
This is rules for thee, but not for me. And this is the history of humanity if the gospel is not present in the public square. And we have to remember that arbitrariness and inconsistency are actually sinful. They're not just silly. They're sinful. It's a sin of the mind. It's a sin of integrity to be arbitrary. Commenting on history, the author Theodore Dalrymple says, Political correctness is communist propaganda writ small. In my study of communist societies, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda was not to persuade or convince, not to inform, but this is really profound. The point is to humiliate. And therefore, the less the lies correspond to reality, the better. Okay? The more audacious lie is actually better. If you can get people to use female pronouns for a boy, that is the most audacious lie of them all. And if they can get you to do that, now you have a populace with absolutely no moral integrity whatsoever. They are easy to steer. So therefore, the less it corresponds to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent, when they are being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they are forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of decency. To assent to obvious lies is in some small way to become evil yourself. One standing to resist anything is thus eroded and even destroyed. A society of emasculated liars is easy to control. And if you examine political correctness, it has the same effect and is intended to. Okay? Moral integrity actually matters. Okay? Whether you have peace with God matters because either you are going to be easy to steer or you will gladly submit to God's law. So every time we acquiesce to participating in the obvious lies of our time, we are making ourselves weaker. We are surrounded by lies, which are either tolerated and often enforced. Okay? And, and again, I can give some examples, but I think we all understand the lies that we're being told. Okay? Can you imagine Jonathan Edwards riding around horseback in New England telling people to have fewer kids so that the weather will be nicer? Okay? It takes a generation of liars to do that. It takes people with no integrity to listen to that stuff and to start believing it. Okay? This is a moral issue, not an intellectual one. One has to be compromised to go along with these things. And going along with them will compromise you even further. Sin makes you a coward, and cowards are easy to control. The masculine godliness of John the Baptist, the kind of godliness that comes from having a clear conscience and submission to God's law instead of to man's law, is not always institution-friendly, as we see in the case of John. So it's absolutely no wonder at all that a culture that is soaked with the guilt of pornography or that has the blood of millions of little babies crying out from the ground, it is no wonder we are easy to control. It's no wonder we're losing our minds. Okay? And when you listen to obvious lies from people, if you listen to the hippies of the 60s that told you to make love and not war, all that lovemaking has resulted in far more death than all the wars that have been fought together. Okay? More Americans have died because of make love, not war, than died in all those wars that they were so opposed to. Don't listen to God-haters. They're lying to you. Okay? And it's obvious lies. It's obvious lies. Have the moral integrity to say, no, we don't listen to lies. I'll be like John the Baptist. I have a clean conscience. I'm following God, not man. Thank you very much. But if we don't have that, it's easy to take a pinch of incense and say, yes, Caesar is Lord. Okay? It's easy to go along with what is demanded of you. 
It makes sense to these kinds of people that it's perfectly safe and legal to go buy a bag of weed and watch strippers, but we can't sing in church because that's unsafe. Okay? That only works for a cowardly, emasculated people that is dripping in guilt, that is dripping from the war that they are in with God. So I want to ask us this morning, do we have the prophetic courage of John the Baptist? Not to be rude, not to go look for a fight, not to be provocative, but to just be steadfast and plain speaking. Okay? Even the language we use. Uh, Chesterton said that nine times out of ten, the refined word is, is meant to excuse a sin and the coarse word condemns it. Right? So we say common law marriage. Well, that sounds pretty good. What does the Bible say? Fornication. Okay? The coarse word condemns it. Political correctness excuses it. Okay? And so we need that plain speaking mindset. So I want to be clear. I'm not encouraging being rude or inconsiderate. But the prophetic example of John's that we see in this text is to be unmovable. Don't be cocky. Don't be obnoxious. But by all means, speak plainly. Keep your moral courage. Keep a clear conscience with the Lord. Be confident and assertive, not because your pride is on the line, but because you are zealous to push the crown rights of King Jesus everywhere you go. And most of all, if you have a clear conscience, you are equipped to be a free man that is part of a free society. We are the ones who are not threatened by idols and co coercion. And so we need to handle ourselves accordingly. Our cool, calm, and confident reverence equips us to show a clear alternative, a clear different path to the guilty, panicky, arbitrary double-mindedness of those who persist in rebellion. And so let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for the example of your prophets in the Old Testament and of your last prophet before Christ, John, that he was not swayed, he didn't live by lies, he lived by truth, he was plain speaking, he had confidence. Lord, and also those who came to reverently handle his body also did not panic or cave to anger or frustration. But because of their clear conscience, they could just humbly, respectfully, and honorably go about their business. And I pray uh, for us as a church, corporately, and us as individual people, as we live in a world of lies, in a world of deceit, in a world that is choosing to live in its guilt and its insanity rather than bending its knee to you. Lord, I pray that our lives, our integrity, our moral and intellectual courage would show a better way, that we would have the integrity of John, that we would have the integrity of the disciples to show that there is peace with you and there is only chaos outside. Lord, help us to be evangelistic in the way we carry this out as well, that we would see uh, people come to you because of our integrity, because of our trust in you, because of our confidence. Lord, help us to do that this week and beyond. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. If you are in Christ, you can sing this closing song. If you are not in Christ, don't deceive yourself, but make things right with God. Let's stand and sing, it is well with my soul.
The charge is this. The account of John the Baptist's beheading lays out the most obvious of contrasts. John is right with God and as a result has a peace and a confidence that allows him to be bold and clear even when calling the most powerful men to repentance. Herod and his household are not right with God and as a result they have an unstable and double-minded spirit that leads to cowardice and panic. God made both church and state to function alongside and in harmony with each other, both under his sovereign authority. And in order for us to enjoy the blessing of a calm and peaceful social order, we will need the courage of a clear conscience. This will not and cannot happen apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The blessing of a free and stable state has only come when the church has taken her prophetic role seriously. On the personal or on the corporate level, forgiven men are free men, and free men create free societies. So let us all find the calm, cool assurance in the gospel that makes our peace and our freedom contagious and receive the, char- or the benediction from Proverbs 28, verse 1 and 2. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. And stay in peace, and for those who are staying for potluck, if you want to turn the chairs and get the table set up, uh, and if you didn't know it was potluck, stay anyway. I'm sure there's plenty of food. Mm-hmm.